0: First Peter 2, verses 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let's pray. Father, I ask that as we consider how we ought to be obedient to this summons from your Apostle Peter, I pray that you would grant us grace. The grace of understanding, the grace of not being offended, the grace of focus, and the ability in our hearts to remove distractions, the anxieties outside this room, and the concerns that we each bring in here with us, and ultimately the grace of repentance, that we would yield to what it is Your Word has to say. Help us know in the way that we consider this passage today that we should not add to or take away from the implications Of your word. Thank you for giving us this time to consider how we might be more faithful. In Jesus' name, amen. So grateful to be here with you this morning. We spent last week a celebration Sunday with baptisms, the Lord's Supper, and a fellowship meal afterward. It was a very full day, a very good day. And we were in this passage. Last week, and what I tried to do was give a basic understanding of the text, the exegesis, if you will, and underscore reasons for celebrating, reasons for rejoicing. I gave you eight from the text. And so this week is all the application that I wanted to cram into that one sermon bumped to the next sermon. So this won't be mainly exegesis, this will be teasing out the implications of what the text, in fact, means. And I want to begin by saying this is not an obscure text. This is not an obscure text. Why does that need to be said? It's a very odd thing to say at the beginning of a sermon. There are many bad examples of exegetical preaching or exegesis, and the point of exegetical preaching is to try and take whatever the meaning of a text is, expose it to God's people, and then say, here's how we should live in light of this truth as it is shown. You can put a text, though, under such a microscope that you see it out of context, whether in its surrounding context or the whole of the Bible. You can put blinders on and lose sight of the forest for the trees when you begin to interpret Scripture. Dangers abound. All interpretation and preaching has to be done in context. And when we say something like, and hopefully you've heard me say this before, Scripture interprets Scripture, it doesn't just mean that you should take a more difficult passage and read that in light of more clear passages. You have to do that. There's dangers in doing that as well. Who's to decide what's clear and what's not? But more importantly, you have to place whatever verse you're dealing with in the context of the whole of Scripture. Let all of Scripture balance out what you see in the text. It's very important. Because you can just latch on to your favorite idea or favorite passage and just go gallivanting through the Bible in all directions and interpreting everything else in light of that text. That is bad exegesis. You shouldn't do that. For example, if you really, really liked the verse, Jesus wept, very short one, one that our kids learn at a very young age because it's easy to rack up the number of memory verses you have if you just remember those two words. But you can't take that one phrase, that one verse, and make it a cornerstone, a pillar of your theology. It is important. It does reveal us God's truth. And it is profound. It shows us that Jesus, in His hypostatic union of being God and man simultaneously, He decides to enter misery and sorrow with people. That's important. But it is not a cornerstone text. You could try to do this with something like the Sabbath. It's important, but it can't become a cornerstone piece of your theology or the rapture or the millennium or the Nephilim. And you will chuckle at people making ideas like that, cornerstones in their theology, but people do this. You run into them at seminary. We must let the Bible itself tell us which passages, what ideas, are in fact central cornerstone pieces. And the Bible will let you know, if you read it as it demands to be read, which passages, what ideas, what theology ought to be those pillars. And I am claiming that these two verses are such a passage. By spending two weeks on two verses... I'm claiming that we should treat it this way. Every piece of a house is important. If you lose a shingle, you're going to get water damage. So, I'm not saying that we need to disregard Scripture. All Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, for training, for correction, but it has to be done and used in that way in context. So There are shingles, if you will, and then there are peers beneath the foundation. This is such a text. It's not an obscure text. Number one, because the idea is seen in so many other places at key points. This idea, namely, that we the people of God are saved to be the ones who most especially praise Him for all He has done is in fact the superstructure of the theology of redemption and why salvation exists in the first place. What is God really up to in creation, in His ordaining, in His redemption? What is He really up to? In a text like this, these two verses, we get a view behind the curtain into the mind and heart of God. So if that is true it would make sense that we would find it in other places. Here's just three examples really quickly. The reason Israel exists wasn't just to be a cool, different nation. It was to be a nation that especially praised God for all He is. They were to be a praise in the earth and give evidence by their worship of God to the surrounding nations that indeed, this is the nation whose God is in fact the true God. You can see this in Ephesians chapter 1. Paul says that the reason we are saved is so that forever God's grace would be magnified to the praise of his glorious grace. This is the point. The whole reason the story of redemption exists is so that these goals that God has would in fact happen. You can see it also in Colossians. God desires to make Christ preeminent in all things. And it's not just like on a record sheet. Like, like, I don't know if you kids played the, the, the there's the high score sheet that shows at the end. That's not the way that God wants Jesus to be preeminent. On some record book somewhere in heaven. He wants His people to have Him as preeminent in their hearts and in their lives. This is how He has set out to create and do and act. This is the end goal that He's after. To have a people who will praise Him for all that He is and all that he has done. So it's not an obscure text. This teaching is everywhere. But also consider that it's not an obscure text because, number two, in 1 Peter, this text is the shift from general theology and general exhortation to specific exhortation. It's presented as the ground of all Christian ethics, and that is a massive claim. In 1 Peter, this passage is that transition point. This idea of God creating a people who praise Him and passionately worship Him forever is the big why immediately behind every detailed command. This has massive significance for you in your life. Sometimes our children, when we give them a specific command, ask us Why? We as parents do the best we can to give them specific answers. And at some point, you just resolve to say, because I told you so, or because I brought you into this world and I can take you out of this world, though that's not even accurate. It was in Old Testament times, but not so much now anymore. Sometimes we run out of answers to the question of why. But God has given us the most important and most needful answer to the question, why? Here's a few examples from the exhortations that are coming up in 1 Peter. Why must we husbands live with our wives in an understanding way? Why must wives submit to their husbands in the Lord? Why must we humbly and joyfully endure sorrows while suffering unjustly? Why must we have no fear but grow strong in our trust in the Lord? even as trials become more costly and frequent? Why must we honor and submit to the governing authorities even when we don't like them that much? And we think we have a bad, you pick Claudius or Nero, regardless of when this was written. It's one of those two. We don't know the half of it. Why should we do all these things? Because you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are a people for God's own possessions that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. That is the why behind every command in the New Testament. It's worded differently across all the books, but that's the idea. God is making us into something and we proclaim it This is the reason we ought to obey. So then, because of these reasons and others, it is warranted for us to hang around a text like this for an extra week. And let it admonish us. Let it critique us. Let it shape our thoughts. And maybe, most importantly, determine how we ought to act as a church and what ought to really matter to us. I want to explain again just what this statement means, the purpose statement means in a nutshell, that you may proclaim His excellencies, or that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him. What does that mean? This is what I would give to you as a biblical definition of worship. God is glorious. You can't add anything to His majesty. The Greek conceptions of the gods, they they needed something from humanity. God doesn't need anything from us. Yet, as we discussed last week, it is fitting. It is right. It is just that such a God would have such a people to worship Him forever. It is Right, It is good. He deserves it. And He deserves us to make His name, which is used in Scripture almost interchangeably with His glory, to make His name famous in all the earth. That's why you exist. And you're either at odds with that purpose or you're in line with it. The reason we need to be saved is because we have all rejected that purpose. And the penalty is death. But Christ restores us to this purpose of glorifying God. We're created in His image so that we, even in a greater way than the angels themselves, can glorify God and proclaim His excellencies. And you have to proclaim it. You can glorify God in your heart. You can. In a way, proclaim His excellencies to yourself, so to speak. You can sit down and enjoy a nice steak dinner to the glory of God. And in your own heart, proclaim His excellencies through gratitude. But that's not what this text is referring to. At least not exclusively. He intentionally uses the word proclaim. It carries this idea of shouting out or making others know it. It is something that you are aware of. We know His excellencies, or should, and now we're going to take it public. We're going to make everyone else see and know how glorious our God is. That's what worship is. God is a speaking God, and Jesus is the Word of God. And we, the people of God, are to lift up words of proclamation and praise to Him. So, now that I've tried to revisit the parameters of the purpose statement and why we're focusing on this so much, I want to go through a few negative parameters, negative parameters to this exhortation, this purpose statement. I mean, just step aside from the flow of the sermon, just for a quick, if, if you just look at it, it is... It is the purpose statement Peter the Apostle gives for God doing all of these things. He has chosen us to be a chosen race. He has called us and qualified us to be a royal priesthood. He has made us a people for His own possession. Why? Why, Mommy and Daddy, why did God do that? So that we might proclaim His excellencies. That is amazing that the Bible allows us in to see into the mind and heart of God what He's doing. Why? So if that's true, that's why we're in this thing, then let's talk about it. We are to proclaim His excellencies, not ours. Proclaim His excellencies, not ours. We're called a holy nation. We didn't spend much time on that statement at all last week, and it is useful that we saved it for this sermon in two ways. There is an interface between our holiness and the proclamation of God's excellencies. We are to show the world that He is indeed as excellent as He really is through our holiness. But that holiness takes on a particular flavor. There's there's narrowness to the summons that that you can't be in the people of God unless you're interested in living a holy life. All those who hope in Christ purify themselves as Christ is pure. So we're unified into this holy nation. and We're distinct from the world. We're separate. So, so that is perhaps a little bit in tension with this idea of communicating God's excellencies. Because if we're to communicate his excellencies by how we live holy, then what can be proclaimed, if we're not careful, is just how good we are. Look at us, we've got it figured out. What I'm trying to get at here, and this is difficult to speak of, is that there is such a thing as a Christian swagger, and it's evil. There's a way to live the holy life, to be the holy nation before the world where you unintentionally bring disrepute on the Gospel by the way you carry yourself and speak to the unbelieving world. We are a holy nation. We are the holy nation, but not of our own doing. We are a chosen race, but not because of our own good. We are the family of God. We are the royal priesthood. But if it were up to us and our own will, we would have left the family just like the prodigal. And we would have despised the job of being a royal priest just like the nation of Israel did. So, in the way we proclaim His excellencies through our holiness, through our rejection of the pleasures of the world, through our rejection of all that the world has to offer, how are you wanting that holiness to come across? Is there a swagger? Look at me and how I have it all together. Why can't you just be like me? Just follow my example. You can say that explicitly or in the way you act. Why, don't you, why do not you believe the stupid things you do, oh people of the world? Can't you get it together? We are Christians, not worldly sinners. No, brothers and sisters, we need to reject that fully. We all stumble in many ways. And we have, each of us, done enough glory-thieving and diminishing of God's majesty that if God were to count iniquities just on your record today, no one could stand. We proclaim His excellencies, not ours. And I'm concerned that a lot of what passes for contending for the faith or evangelism or mission carries the flavor of don't you want to be like me? Instead of look and see our God. Behold what He has done in His Son Jesus Christ. We ought to, as it has been said many times, be like beggars showing other beggars where the bread is. That's the only difference. We know where it is. Jesus Christ is the bread from heaven and we've found Him by God's grace. Come and taste and see that the Lord is good. That is an entirely different flavor. We proclaim His excellencies, not ours. We proclaim His excellencies. This is the second negative parameter. That you may proclaim His excellencies, not just His existence. One of my... Many, many writing projects that I hope to finish one day in the future sometime is a little book or article titled The Cult of God. It's a provocative title and that's intentional and that's the reason I'm using it here. I can, if I could put it another way for you though, I'm tired of hearing a lot about God, 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 and very little about Jesus and the Gospel and what God has done in His Son to reconcile Himself to the world. God is a title, not a name. And there is only one name given under heaven and earth whereby we must be saved. It is Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the Son of God. The point here is this. The one true God who is there does not wish to just be acknowledged in his existence. Anyone can see that. If you just pause and think, someone had to get this whole thing started. The scientists can push it back as far as they want, but it still doesn't answer the question of how did we get this anyway? Where did existence come from? As one philosopher put it, the problem is something exists and that's a problem. But that's not enough. The demons believe that God is one and they shudder. The text shows us that he desires to be praised for what he has done. Namely, in the person of Jesus Christ to create a people for Himself. This is why it says, of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, now you were God's people. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. That's the content. Those are the pillars of what we're saying about this God. These are His excellencies because He has done these things. Not just that He's there. It's not an either or, or of course. Like, of course we need to say that God exists. But it's background and foreground. His existence, his brute existence, that's an amazing thing. But the excellencies that God desires us to proclaim to the world are his kindness and his mercy and his grace, as seen in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Number three, that you may proclaim his excellencies, not just how to escape hell. This is a deep concern in our evangelism and in our posture towards the world and even in our posture towards each other, we can put God in a rescue humanity from certain doom straitjacket. It's not all about the Great Commission. The Great Commission exists because God desires that there should be a people to proclaim His excellencies. As one theologian put it, Missions exist because worship doesn't. That's more profound than you may realize. We have to move through these quickly. I know I'm... I, I had seven of each, the negative parameters and the positive parameters, so I cut it down to five each, so I hope you appreciate that. I just inserted them under different headings. If all we try to do is help people escape hell and judgment then God is simultaneously both the problem and the solution, and so it's a net zero for people. Well, I appreciate you've told me about this problem of eternal judgment, and God fixes the problem. Okay, and you can just push right past it. We've checked the box. You're saved. Move on to the next person who needs to escape hell. We think that they're good. And when we do that, we show that what matters to us is more the fate of humanity and human souls than the glory of God in Christ, the reason why you're saved in the first place. When we do that, actually fewer people escape hell than we think. If You remember the parable of the sower. We we rejoice, we get excited about the the plant with shallow root that springs up with joy and then persecution and trials or the the seed that was sown among thorns that springs up and then the weeds and the cares of this world, and then it ultimately bears no fruit. We've moved on. We haven't helped them. We haven't dug around their roots and cleared away the weeds and showed them the excellencies of our God so that they might grow up into Christ's likeness, rendering Him the praise that is due His name. That's the fruit He wants. And here's, here's the point. When we're presenting the Gospel or the truth about God... Why should they believe that this God is trustworthy enough to entrust their whole lives to? Why should they believe that He is good and glorious enough to have as our all-consuming treasure and delight? We, the people of God, have done a poor job of showing them why in our own lives And we have flattened the gospel to very little more than cosmic fire insurance. We have so much more than John 3.16, if you will let me put it that way. We have so much. A big book that tells us all about His glory and all about His majesty and why it makes such a big deal that He has saved us to do this very thing. Why should you entrust yourself over to Him? Because He is worthy. And here's how we know that He is worthy. A community of people in love with the Lord, exalting Christ together passionately and loving one another, that is the setting in which God will begin to add to our number day by day those who are being saved. That you may proclaim His excellencies, not just obedience. I want you to hear this loud and clear. Obedience is essential. We are saved to walk in holiness before our God. However, I think we may have done a very poor job of communicating the why behind obedience. Sometimes, in our posture towards the world and towards each other, the message of the gospel or the message of Christianity can be just basically summarized into this do better. Do better because there's a God up there who deserves that you do better and you better do better or He'll get you. It's just moralism. It's just legalism. Quit your sin. Be more like me. What's the benefit of that if they don't really love God? You even give your body to be burned as a martyr. You have not love. Just a clanging gong, a noisy symbol. Even if it works, even if you're successful in trying to pressure people into obedience without any of the why behind it, then all you have is a community of Pharisees. There's a lot we could say about the relationship between the law and the gospel, between the commands of God and the gospel itself. But here's the point we proclaim his excellencies. And obedience begins to flow freely from a heart that is enthralled with the Lord Jesus. Anything short really isn't obedience. This is what it means to come to Him and why you must come to Him before you can ever hope to genuinely repent of all the sin that you must repent of. Lastly, under the negative parameters, we are to proclaim His excellencies, not your favorite cause. There are a lot of worthy causes. But, I don't think that we in the American Evangelical Church have quite learned from the rebuke of Jesus the poor you will always have with you. And we have not learned from the priorities of Peter himself in the temple when he says, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. There are many worthy causes, but none so worthy as proclaiming the excellencies of the Lord together, and it's not even close. Consider that your favorite cause no matter how many justifications you can give to it, biblical as they may be, can indeed become a distraction to this goal, this purpose of proclaiming His excellencies together. One example I'll use from the Old Testament is the prophet Haggai. Do you remember the problem? We we preached through this not too long ago. If there was ever a justified cause, a good cause that the people focused on, it would be rebuilding their houses. This was the problem. They returned from exile and everything's in ruins, not just the temple. And rebuilding the temple, that's a, that's a big project. And we've got to get our own households in order before we build up the temple of God. And God sends Haggai to them and says, no, no, no justified as rebuilding your house may be, as needful as it may be, you need a roof over your head. You put My house first, and I will restore. This is what Jesus is getting at when He says, seek first the Kingdom of God. And all these things will be added to you. The path to pursue the goal of these good causes may become much more straight and less encumbered by hindrances if we focus on the Kingdom first. What is a temptation to you in this area of letting a good cause usurp the priority of proclaiming the excellencies of our God together? Is it politics? Is it mercy ministries? Is it the future? Is it trying to build a legacy? Is it your retirement? Is it your favorite theological topic? I have known people to get so sidetracked by their favorite theological hobby horse where every conversation no matter where it starts ultimately ends up in a conversation about that. And what what's shown is that what really matters to you isn't the proclaiming of God's excellencies it's your understanding and you're trying to conform everyone else to that particular stance on that particular issue. And it's a distraction. It's not that it's wrong. Hear me clearly. These causes aren't wrong. Your favorite theological topic, you might have the right idea on it. You might be the only one in the world that has the right view of it. But that's not proclaiming the excellencies of our God together. The central question is this What are you really an evangelist for? Because you're an evangelist for something. Young people, what are you an evangelist for? Evangelism isn't a job title, it's a summons for every Christian. What do you proclaim the good news of? Early seek the Lord. Early proclaim His excellencies. I fear that many evangelists and many apologists out there are more trained and more interested in things like proving evolution or the Big Bang wrong more than they are interested in proving and proclaiming that our God is worthy of worship because of what He has done in the Lord Jesus. The Gospel is the power of God for salvation. Not having the right view on all the second level and third level issues. The Gospel saves. And it is in the Gospel that the excellencies of our God are most clearly seen. Show them that. If any objective, unbiased observer, were to analyze your life and compute what it is you're an evangelist for, what do you spend the most time talking about and praising and proclaiming the goodness of? What would they say? Which is the same thing to ask how would God size up your life? Is it the excellencies of our God in the Gospel? Or is it something else? No matter how good it may be, or how right it may be, or how true it may be. So some positive parameters for us, not just the negative ones of what not to do. Here's what we ought to do. How it ought to flavor the obedience to this command. That you may proclaim His excellencies joyfully, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light with joy. Why should anyone want to be a Christian if all they see is humdrum, dreary Christians? We may say, I love the Lord Jesus, and I think a lot of the world would say, you could have fooled me. This is one of the reasons we're commanded not to be so anxious and not to fear and not to be bitter. It's not just because those are bad feelings, but those emotions, those postures of the heart get in the way of joyful proclamation of the excellencies of our God. It's bigger and more important than just how you feel. It's a summons to be consistent in our heart with what we say about our God. Our Lord Jesus must receive the full reward of His sacrifice. And one of the rewards that He deserves is a large group of people who hold Him as their number one joy. Do you get that? Worship, joyful worship, worship filled with zeal and a desire to, to push yourself to express and to feel more joy in God. That's what He deserves. He deserves and demands much more than your dreary, obligatory servitude. This is a hard thing to understand because often in our own hearts we find so little resources to summon joy in our hearts, but we're doing it the wrong way. God is our joy. We don't render joy and then bring it to God. We go to God for our joy so that we may joyfully proclaim His excellencies. On the one hand, we're, we're not here. We are not saved to just come together and have a good time. I love having a good time. Every time we have a Celebration Sunday, I I leave thinking how full and how joyful and how fun it was. There's nothing wrong with that, but that's not why we're saved. And so a question before we move to the other side of it, is that why you're here? Just to have a good time? Those of you who claim to know the Lord, do you do what you do, do you belong to what you belong just to have a good time and to wait until Jesus returns and takes us home? You have a job to do, and it's so much bigger than having a good time. On the other hand, the center, the foundation of our joy should be the Lord Himself and all that He has done in His passion in saving us. He deserves to have people who are happy in Him. But I fear that we are so very happy about so many other different things. The center of your joy is something else. If a non believer were to ask, or if we were to ask a non believer, rather, what makes that Christian truly happy? What would they say about you? Would it be political outcomes? Would it be vacations? Would it be answered prayer? Would it be peace in our world or healing? What about the Lord Jesus Himself? Don't you understand that this is part of the reason why the Lord ordains trial in your life and suffering? Not so that you would just become more mature, like He's some drill sergeant in heaven making you hike up another mountain. That's part of it. But the reason He brings trial and sorrow and difficulty into your life is so that you would clearly demonstrate that the foundation of your joy is not the things in this world, but rather is in Him. He strips it all away so that it is clear and it is seen not just by the world, but by you. Second positive parameter. That you may proclaim His excellencies together. This is the dead horse that still lives. It's a very weird analogy, beating a dead horse. I've never seen a person do that. I've heard people do that. But I've never seen it happen, so I don't know what's really being communicated. But this, this idea of together and all of us in unity, this is the dead horse that still lives, and I'm going to continue beating it In terms of sheer volume, if you really just study verses 9 and 10, the majority of words in these two verses talk about the people of God being a unified whole. You, plural, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. It's all of us together. There are no longer two distinct races in God's economy, Jew and Gentile. There are not two people of God. There are not multiple priesthoods. There are no two experiences or levels of grace. There are no second class citizens in the kingdom of God. And why is that important? This is the dead horse that still lives. You cannot live your life as a faithful Christian unless you are living in unity and intentional commitment to the people of God, the church. It can't be done. There is no such thing as a freelance Christian. I don't know what to tell you. All of the one another commands in Scripture cannot be obeyed outside of the context of meaningful community with the body of Christ. can't be done. I'm not trying to just insist on a hobby horse myself. These form a large grouping of all the moral commands of the New Testament. And I'm just trying to help us become more obedient to the Lord Jesus and His apostles. Some of you may have a lot of love in your heart towards Jesus. You try to live a holy life and have your quiet time and pursue just causes in the world. But functionally, you are severed from the body of Christ. God intends to create an orchestra of people who together proclaim His excellencies and you're insisting on starting a solo act. Again, I, I just don't know what to tell you. Are you bearing one another's burdens and so fulfilling the law of Christ? Are you exhorting one another every day so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin? Are you considering others more significant than yourself? There is grace and mercy for sinners. These are hard things to obey. This, 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 is To do it perfectly would be perfection. There's grace and there's mercy and there's encouragement. I know that this is hard. We can have the posture of, I believe, I know that this is what the Lord requires of me. Help my unbelief. And I know that for some of you, it is harder to obey these commands than it is for some of us. And I understand that. But let us in and let us help. But there is a stubbornness. A stubborn and willful, I don't really care. It's just Jesus and me, or it's just me and my family and Jesus. That mindset is evil. And you are turning down God's invitation to the party like the older brother who insisted on his petty frustrations with his younger brother and wouldn't enter the joy. Don't do that. You'll only harm yourself. Even showing partiality within the family. Maybe you have your favorites in this room and you're fine having unity and joy and meaningful Christian community within, but then there are those other people If we were building the ideal church, we would put our rosters together and it would be be much more respectable than than those people that God has ordained to be my brothers and sisters in this local context. But by God's providence and His ordination, we are who we are. And God's summon to you is to love these people especially. What are you going to do about it? You may attend regularly, but your life is not connected intimately to the body of Christ and especially not the weaker brother or the one in your eyes who is the weaker brother. What God is summoning us to is an all-of-us-together-now approach to proclaiming the excellencies of our God in love and in unity and intentionally seeking out each other and bearing one another's burdens you are the royal priesthood. Your brothers and sisters in Christ, those who have genuine trust in the Lord Jesus, are fellow priests with you. Treat them like it. Will you be willing to set aside petty or even not so petty disagreements and hurt so that we can proclaim His excellencies together? I wonder and I worry what will our answer be we are to proclaim his excellencies also indiscriminately we discussed this we touched on it a tiny bit at the end of the message last week last lord's day the question is to whom are we proclaiming god's excellencies that you may proclaim them the text doesn't specify who in the world are we proclaiming them to and there's there's two ways of answering it one way of answering it is this. Just one answer. Everyone. All that is in existence. Everything that has breath. Any being that can understand. That is the intended audience of our proclamation of the excellencies of our God. But there's another way of answering it. Let's just break that down a little bit. There are four answers. Number one, to one another. Talked about this together analogy, all of us being an orchestra proclaiming together, but there's another sense in which we proclaim the excellencies, the excellencies of our God together, and that is to one another. Did you know that this is your job, brothers and sisters? You are to proclaim the excellencies of our God to each other. That's your job description when you come to this building on the Lord's Day. Not just to sit there and receive. But why? Aren't they already saved? Sure, but if you're familiar with the way that your heart forgets the excellencies of our God, then you can understand that the reason you're in your brother or sister's life is to remind them just how excellent our God is. Again, it's not the flavor of do better, get it together, but behold your God, brother and sister, see Him. That is where there is hope for real change. We're not just trying to conform other people to our own cookie-cutter vision of Christianity and obedience. Look at Him. Behold Him. See His goodness. And trust that the Holy Spirit will begin to transform them so that obedience flows freely. And maybe in the process, you're matured as well. So that's the first. To one another, to the world. We've discussed this at length. This is kind of the main context that we're, we are the ones who know, or should know, how excellent our God is. So we are proclaiming, we are making His name famous to those who don't yet know. That is what evangelism or missions is. But just consider how well supported in Scripture this idea is. This is from the Sermon on the Mount. In the same way, let your light... Shine before others so that they may see Your good works and glorify God, Your Father, who is in heaven. And the very next passage, the very next set of verses that we will be in on Resurrection Sunday of all days. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your souls. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds. Glorify God on the day of visitation. Your life before the world is to proclaim and prove something, not about you, but about our God. This is who we are. So that's the second. To, to one another, to the world, Thirdly, to the angels. If there was a being other than God who would know most about the excellencies of our God, I would probably pick one of the seraphim, one of the cherubim. But turn to Ephesians chapter 3. I want you to see this. We we won't have time to explain this, but just to know that it's there is stunning. To whom are we to proclaim the excellencies of our God? The third answer, to the angels. Beginning in verse 7. Of this Gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of His power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Verse 10, another purpose statement in the Bible. So that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. God's plan for proving to the cherubim and seraphim and even Gabriel himself how glorious his wisdom is, is you and me. You proclaiming the excellencies even to the angels who have to hide their face because of how close they are to the throne. You are God's plan. We are God's plan to proclaim the excellencies of Him to them. Again, Not enough time to talk about it, but just know that's your job too. And then lastly, to the Lord Himself. Again, answering the question, to whom are we proclaiming? We're proclaiming indiscriminately. So this also includes the last answer to the Lord Himself. This is one that gets neglected. Tell other people about God maybe. Try to be a good evangelist and proclaim God. We can have some sense of what our destiny will be in heaven. But I would say the most important person that we're to proclaim the excellencies of our God to is God Himself. Indeed, this is why the tribe of Levi was brought near in Deuteronomy 10, verse 8. At that time, the Lord set apart the tribe of Levi to carry the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, to stand before the Lord, to minister to Him and to bless His name to this day. If we're the royal priesthood, then this idea of priesthood doesn't always imply mediation between one party and another. Your job as the royal priesthood is to be the preeminent proclaimers of God's excellencies back to Him. Also, the next positive parameter, through the Gospel of Jesus Christ. We discussed this some last week. Those three clauses, the One who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light, once you were not a people, now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. That is the central foreground of what we are to proclaim. Consider the vision of John. I wanted to read this at the end. This is to prove and show that The way we proclaim the excellencies of our God isn't just God is your judge and He is holy and He will damn you if you don't repent. That is an excellency of our God, but that's not the foreground of what He once communicated. How will we worship Jesus together? Turn to the Revelation of John chapter 5. when John sees the vision of what worship services will be like when we're gathered before the throne of the Most High God, this is the the type of things that we will say. Beginning in verse 9. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood You ransomed a people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And You have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain The why behind why this Lamb ought to receive all this majesty, honor, and glory, and dominion is because He has by His own blood ransomed a people, a nation for God, and appointed them to be a kingdom and priest. It's exactly the same language we find in 1 Peter 2, verses 9 and 10. This is what He wants to be praised forever for. What Jesus has done. Why? Because He deserves it. He is worthy. And this is the point. This is why you exist. This is why He saved us. As Paul says in Ephesians, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. And lastly, we proclaim the excellencies of our God honestly. might feel odd to save that one for the end. We could have ended through the Gospel of Jesus Christ, but I wanted to end here because it's Palm Sunday. And as you know, there was a very large crowd of people following Jesus, laying down the palm branches and their cloaks on the ground, crying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Come and save us. Glory to God. And in less than a week's time, they were crying out, crucify Him. Probably not all of them but some in that same crowd. We must proclaim the excellencies of our God honestly so that we are not like that crowd. To really know how excellent our God is. To love it and proclaim those excellencies honestly so that we are not found to be hypocrites. Just a few questions to close on to tease out this idea of honesty in our proclamation of God's glory and His excellencies. Where do you personally need to adjust or repent so that you may proclaim the excellencies of our God in this way? Ask it another way. What gets in the way of you personally being able to consistently and joyfully proclaim His excellencies? there are a lot of things that can get in the way. And it's not just sin. This is why we're commanded in Hebrews, lay aside the sin and the weights that so easily beset us. What distracts you? What good things have you allowed to become the main thing? Second question, do you actually desire to do this? Do you know or do you care to know what the excellencies of our God actually are? What are you really interested in learning about and mastering and leveling up in? Are you entranced and enamored by the excellencies of our Lord? Do you even want to be? Young people, What are you really interested in? It ought to be how excellent and praiseworthy our God is. Second line of questioning, where do we as a church need to adjust or repent? What have we allowed to get in the way and distract us from a consistent and joyful proclamation of the excellencies of our God? And I want to say to those who are in this room who have not trusted in such a God for salvation, I want to simultaneously proclaim His excellencies and summon you to come to Him. It would be foolish to end a message all about the excellencies of our God and to not appeal to you. I don't know who you are. I know there are many young in this room who do not yet know the Lord as their Savior. John Bunyan in commenting on John 6 when Jesus says, whoever comes to Me, I will never cast out. And the reason I'm stating this is to show you just how excellent He is and to simultaneously call you to such a Savior. But I am a great sinner, say you. I will never cast out, says Christ. But I am an old sinner, say you. I will never cast out says Christ. But I am a hard-hearted sinner, say you. I will never cast out, says Christ. But I am a backsliding sinner, say you. I will never cast out, says Christ. But I have served Satan all my days, say you. I will never cast out, says Christ. But I have sinned against the light, say you. I will never cast out, says Christ. But I have sinned against mercy, say you. I will never cast out, says Christ. But I have no good thing to bring with me, say you. I will never cast out, says Christ. Don't you see, dear friend? such a Savior who will never cast you out if you will come to Him deserves your love and your trust and everything you have even your very life because He has already paid everything to make your salvation and your eternal blessedness possible come to Him He's worth it He is excellent in all His ways let's pray Father, we love you. Thank you for pouring your spirit into our heart that we may love you more freely, joyfully. Stir us up to be the kind of people to proclaim your excellencies honestly, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, together, not allowing distractions to take us off this course. Do so... For your name's sake, it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.